Section number one of A General View of Positivism by Auguste Comte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A General View of Positivism by Auguste Comte, translated by John Henry Bridger. Chapter one The Intellectual Character of Positivism, Part one. The object of philosophy is to present a systematic view of human life as a basis for modifying its imperfections. The object of all true philosophy is to frame a system which shall comprehend human life under every aspect, social as well as individual. It embraces, therefore, the three kinds of phenomena of which our life consists, thoughts, feelings and actions. Under all these aspects the growth of humanity is primarily spontaneous the basis on which all wise attempts to modify it should proceed can only be furnished by an exact acquaintance with the natural process. We are however able to modify this process systematically and the importance of this extreme since we can thereby gradually diminish the partial deviations, the disastrous delays and the grave inconsistencies to which so complex a growth would be liable were it left entirely to itself. To effect this necessary intervention is the proper sphere of politics, but a right conception cannot be formed of it without the aid of the philosopher, whose business it is to define and amend the principles on which it is conducted. With this object in view, the philosopher endeavours to coordinate the various elements of man's existence, so that it may be conceived of theoretically as an integral whole. His synthesis can only be valid in far as it is an exact and complete representation of the relations naturally existing. The first condition is therefore that these relations be carefully studied. When the philosopher, instead of forming such a synthesis, attempts to interfere more directly with the course of practical life, he commits the error of usurping the province of the statesman, to whom all practical measures exclusively belong. Philosophy and politics are the two principal functions of the great social organism. Morality systematically considered forms the connecting link and at the same time the line of demarcation between them. It is the most important application of philosophy and it gives a general direction to polity. Natural morality, that is to say the various emotions of our moral nature, will, as I have shown in my previous work, always govern the speculations of the one and the operations of the other. This I shall explain more fully. But the synthesis which is the social function of philosophy to construct, will neither be real nor permanent unless it embraces every department of human nature, whether speculative, effective or practical. These three orders of phenomena react upon each other so intimately that any system which does not include all of them must inevitably be unreal and inadequate. Yet it is only in the present day, when philosophy is reaching the positive stage, that it is which a highest and most essential mission can be fully apprehended. The theological synthesis failed to include the practical side of human nature. The theological synthesis depended exclusively upon our affective nature, and this is owing to its original supremacy and ultimate decline. For a long time its influence over all our highest speculations was paramount. This was especially the case during the polytheistic period when imagination and feeling still held their sway under very slight restraint from the reasoning faculties. Yet even during the time of its highest development intellectually and socially, theology exercised no real control over practical life. It reacted, of course, upon to some extent, 
but the effects of it were in most cases far more apparent than real. There was a natural antagonism between them, which, though at first hardly perceived, went on increasing, till at last it brought about the entire destruction of theological fabric. A system so purely subjective could not harmonise with the necessarily objective tendencies and stubborn realities of practical life. Theology asserted all phenomena to be under the dominion of wills, more or less arbitrary, whereas in practical life men were led more and more clearly to the conception of invariable laws. For without laws human action would have admitted of no rule or plan. In consequence of this utter inability of theology to deal with practical life, its treatment of speculative and even of moral problems was exceedingly imperfect, such problems being all or more or less dependent on the practical necessities of life. To present a perfectly synthetic view of human nature was then impossible, as long as the influence of theology lasted, because the intellect was impelled by feeling and by the active powers in two totally different directions. The failure of all metaphysical attempts to form a synthesis need not be dwelt upon here. Metaphysicians, in spite of their claims to absolute truth, have never been able to supersede theology in questions of feeling, and have proved still more inadequate in practical questions. Ontology, even when it was the most triumphant in the schools, was always limited to subjects of a purely intellectual nature, and even here its abstractions, useless in themselves, dealt only with the case of individual development, the metaphysical spirit being thoroughly limited. Ontology, even when it was its most triumphant in the schools, was always limited to subjects of a purely intellectual nature, and even here its abstractions, useless in themselves, dealt only with the case of individual development, the metaphysical spirit being thoroughly incompatible with the social point of view. In my work on positive philosophy I have clearly proved that it constitutes only a transitory phase of mind, and it is totally inadequate for any constructive purpose. For a time it was supreme, but its utility lay simply in revolutionary tendencies. It aided the preliminary development of humanity by its gradual inroads upon theology, which, though in ancient times entrusted with the sole direction of society, had long since become in every respect utterly retrograde. But the positive spirit originated in practical life. But all positive speculations owe their first origin to the occupations of practical life, and consequently they have always given some indication of their capacity for regulating our active powers, which had been admitted from every former synthesis. Their value in this respect has been, and still is, materially impaired by their want of breadth, and their isolated and incoherent character, but it has always been instinctively felt. The importance that we attach to, uh, to theories which teach the laws of phenomena, and give us the power of provision, is chiefly due to the fact that they alone can regulate our otherwise blind action upon the external world. Hence it is that while the positive spirit has been growing more and more theoretical and has gradually extended to every department of speculation, it has never lost the practical tendencies which it derived from its source, and this even in the case of researches unless in themselves and only to be justified as logical exercises. From its first origin in mathematics and astronomy, it has always shown its tendency to systematise the whole of our conceptions in every new subject which has been brought within the scope of its fundamental principle. 
it exercised for a long time a modifying influence on the theological and metaphysical principles which had gone on increasing and since the time of descartes and bacon it has become evident that it is destined to supersede them altogether positivism has gradually taken possession of the preliminary sciences of physics and biology and in these old systems no longer prevail all that remained was to complete this range of influence by including the social study of social phenomena for this study metaphysics has proved incompetent by theological thinkers it has only been pursued indirectly and empirically as a condition of government i believe that my work on positive philosophy has so far supplied what it was wanting I think it now must be clear to all that the positive spirit can embrace the entire range of thought without lessening, or rather without the effect of strengthening its original tendency to regulate practical life. And it is a further guarantee for the stability of the new intellectual synthesis that social science, with its final result of researches, gives them that systematic character in which they had hitherto been wanting by supplying the only connecting link of which they all admit. This conception is already adopted by true thinkers. All must now acknowledge that the positive spirit tends necessarily towards the formation of a comprehensive and durable system in which every practical as well as every speculative subject shall be included. But such a system would still be far from realising that universal character without which positivism would be incompetent to supersede theology in the spiritual government of humanity. For the element which really preponderates in every human being that is to say affection would still be left untouched this element is and this only which gives a stimulus and direction to the other two parts of our nature without it the one would waste its force in ill-conceived or at least useless studies and the other in barren or in dangerous contention with this immense deficiency the combination of our theoretical and active powers would be fruitless because it would lack the only principle which could ensure its real and permanent stability. The failure would be even greater than the failure of theology in dealing with practical questions, for the unity of human nature cannot really be made to depend either on the rational or the active facilities. In the life of the individual, and still more in the life of the race, the basis of unity, as I shall show in the fourth chapter, must always be feeling. It is to the fact that theology arose spontaneously from feeling that its influence is for the most part due and although theology is now palpably on the decline yet it will retain in principle at least some legitimate claim to the direction of society so long as the new philosophy fails to occupy this important vantage ground we come then to the final conditions with which the modern synthesis must comply without neglecting the spheres of thought and action it must also comprehend the moral sphere and the very principle on which its claim to universality rests must be derived from feeling. Then, and not till then, can the claims of theology be finally set aside. For then the new system will have surpassed the old in that which is the one essential purpose of all general doctrines. It will have shown itself able to effect what no other doctrine has done, that is to bring the three primary elements of our nature into harmony. If positivism were to prove incapable of satisfying this condition, we must give up all hope of systematization of any kind. For while positive principles are now sufficiently developed to neutralize those of theology, yet on the other hand, the influence of theology would continue to be far greater. Hence it is that many of the conscientious thinkers in the present day 
are so inclined to despair for the future of society. They see what the old principles on which society has been governed must finally become powerless. What they do not see is that a new basis for morality is being gradually laid down. Their theories are too imperfect and incoherent to show them that the direction towards which the present time is ultimately tending. It must be owned, too, that their view seems borne out by the present character of the positive method. While all allow its utility in the treatment of practical and even speculative problems, it seems to most men, and very naturally, quite unfit to deal with questions of morality. In human nature, and therefore the positive system, affection is the preponderating element. But on closer examination they will see reason to rectify their judgment. They will see that the hardiness with which positive science has been justly reproached is due to the speciality and want of purpose with which it has hitherto been pursued, and is not at all inherent in its nature. Originating as it did in the necessities of our material nature, which for a long time restricted it to the study of the inorganic world, it has not till now become sufficiently complete or systematic to harmonise well with our moral nature. But now that it is brought to bear upon social questions, which for the future will form its most important field, it loses all the defects peculiar to its long period of infancy. The very attribute of reality, which is claimed by the new philosophy, leads it to treat all subjects from the moral still more than from the intellectual side. The necessity of assigning with exact truth the place occupied by the intellect and by the heart in the organisation of human nature and of society leads to the decision that affection must be the central point in the synthesis. In the treatment of social questions, positive science will be found utterly to discard the proud illusions of the supremacy of reason, to which it has been liable during its preliminary stages. Ratifying, in this respect, the most common experience of men, even more forcibly than Catholicism, it teaches us that individual happiness and public welfare are far more dependent upon the heart than upon the intellect. But independently of this question, of coordinating the facilities of our nature, will convince us that the only basis on which they can be brought into harmonious union is the preponderance of affection over reason, and even over activity. The fact that intellect as well as social sympathy is a distinctive attribute of our nature might lead us to suppose that either of those two might be supreme, and therefore that there might be more than one method of establishing unity. The fact, however, is that there is only one, because the two elements are by no means equal in their fitness for assuming in the first place. Whether we look at the distinctive qualities of each, or at the degree of force which they possess, it is easy to see that the only position for which the intellect is permanently adapted is to be the servant of the social sympathies. If instead of being content with this honourable post, it aspires to become supreme, its ambitious aims, which are never realised, result simply in the most deplorable disorder. Even with the individual it is impossible to establish permanent harmony between our various impulses, except by giving complete supremacy to the feeling which prompts the sincere and habitual desire of doing good. This feeling is, no doubt, like the rest, in itself blind. It has to learn from reason the right means of obtaining satisfaction, and our active faculties are then called into requisition to apply those means. But common experience proves that after all the principal conditions of right action is the benevolent impulse, 
with the ordinary amount of intellect and activity that is found in men this stimulus if well sustained is enough to direct our thoughts and energies to a good result without this habitual spring of action they would inevitably waste themselves in barren or incoherent efforts and speedily relapse into their original torpor unity in our moral nature then is impossible except in so far as affection preponderates over intellect and activity the proper function of intellect is the service of the social sympathies true as this fundamental principle is for the individual it is in public life that it is a necessity and can be demonstrated most irrefutably the problem is in reality the same nor is any different solution of it required only it assumes such increased dimensions that less uncertainty is felt as to the method to be adopted the various beings whom it is sought to harmonize have in this case each a separate existence it is clear therefore that the first condition of cooperation must be sought in their own inherent tendency to universal love no calculations of self-interest can rival this social instinct whether in promptitude and breadth of intuition or in boldness and tenacity of purpose true it is the benevolent emotions have them in the most cases the less intrinsic energy than the selfish but they have this beautiful quality that social life not only commits their growth but stimulates it to an almost unlimited extent while it holds their antagonists in constant check indeed the increasing tendency in the former to prevail over the latter is the best measure by which to judge of the progress of humanity but the intellect may do much to confirm their influence it may strengthen their social feeling by diffusing juster views of the relation in which the various parts of society stand to each other or it may guide its application by dwelling on the lessons which the past offers to the future it is to this honourable service that the new philosophy would direct our intellectual powers here the highest sanction is given to their operations and an exhaustless field is opened out for them from which far deeper satisfaction may be gained than from the approbation of the learned societies or from the puerile specialties in which they are present occupied in fact the ambitious claim which ever since the hopeless decline of the theological synthesis have been advanced by the intellect never were or could be realized their only value lay in the solvent action on the theological system when it had become hostile to progress the intellect is intended for service not for empire when it imagines itself supreme it is really only obeying the personal instead of the social instincts it never acts independently of feeling be that feeling good or bad the first condition of command is force now reason has but light the impulse that moves must come from elsewhere the metaphysical utopias in which life of pure contemplation is held out as the highest ideal attract the notice of our men of science but are really nothing but illusions of pride or veils for dishonest schemes true there is a genuine satisfaction in the act of discovering truth but it is not sufficiently intense to be a habitual guide of conduct indeed so feeble is our intellect that the impulse of some passion is necessary to direct and sustain it almost every effort when the impulse comes from kindly feeling it attracts attention on account of its rarity or value when it springs from the selfish motives of glory ambition or gain it is too common to be remarked this is usually the only difference between the two cases it does indeed occasionally happen that the intellect is actuated by a sort of passion for truth in itself without any mixture of pride or vanity 
Yet, in this case, as in every other, there is intense egotism in exercising the mental powers irrespectively of all social objects. Positivism, as I shall afterwards explain, is even more severe than Catholicism in its condemnation of this type of character, whether in metaphysicians or in men of science. The true philosopher would consider it a most culpable abuse of the opportunities which civilization affords him for the sake of the welfare of society in leading a speculative life. We have traced the positive principle from its origins in the pursuit of active life and have seen it extending successively to every department of speculation. We now find it in its maturity and that as a simple result of its strict adherence to fact embracing the sphere of affection and making that sphere the central point of its synthesis. It is henceforth a fundamental doctrine of positivism, a doctrine of as great political as philosophical importance that the heart preponderates over the intellect. Under theology the intellect was the slave of the heart, under positivism its servant. It is true that the doctrine which is the only basis for establishing harmony in our nature has been, as I have before remarked, instinctively accepted by the theological systems. But it was one of the fatalities of our society in its preliminary phase that the doctrine was coupled with an error which, after time, destroyed all its value. In acknowledging the superiority of the heart, the intellect was reduced to abject submission. Its only chance of growth lay in the resistance to the established system. This course it followed with increasing effect, till after twenty centuries of insurrection the system collapsed. The natural result of the process was to stimulate metaphysical and scientific pride and to promote views subversive of all social order. But positivism, while systematically adopting the principle here spoken of as the foundation of individual and social discipline, interprets that principle in a different way. It teaches that, while it is for the heart to suggest our problems, it is for the intellect to solve them. Now the intellect was at first quite inadequate to this task, for which a long and laborious training was needed. The heart, therefore, had to take its place, and in default of objective truth, to give free play to its subjective inspirations. But for these inspirations, all progress, as I showed in my system of positive philosophy, would have been totally impossible. For a long time it was necessary that they should be believed absolutely, but as soon as our reason began to mould its conceptions upon observations, more or less accurate, of the external world, these supernatural dogmas became inevitably an obstacle to its growth. Here lies the chief source of the important modifications which the theological belief has successively undergone. No further modifications are now possible without violating its essential principles, and since, meantime, positive science is assuming every day larger proportions, the conflict between them is advancing with increasing vehemence and danger. The tendency on the one side is becoming more retrograde, on the other more revolutionary, because the impossibility of reconciling the two opposing forces is felt more and more strongly. Never was this position of affairs more manifest than now. The restoration of theology to its original power, supposing such a thing were possible, would have the most degrading influence on the intellect, and, consequently, on the character also, since it would involve the admission that our views of scientific truth were to be strained into accordance with our wishes and our wants. 
Therefore no important step in the progress of humanity can now be made without totally abandoning the theological principle. The only service of any real value which it still renders is that of forcing the attention of Western Europe, by the very fact of its reactionary tendencies, upon the greatest of all social questions. It is owing to its influence that the central point of the new synthesis is placed in our moral rather than in our intellectual nature, and this in spite of every prejudice and habit of thought that has been formed during the revolutionary period of the last five centuries. And while in this, which is the primary condition of social organization, positivism proves more efficient than theology, it is at the same time the termination of the disunion which has existed so long between the intellect and the heart. For it follows logically from its principles, and also from the whole spirit of the system, that the intellect shall be free to exercise its full share of influence in every department of human life. When it is said that the intellect should be subordinate to the heart, what is meant is that the intellect should devote itself exclusively to the problems which the heart suggests, the ultimate object being to find proper satisfaction for our various wants. Without this limitation, experience has shown too clearly that it would almost always follow its natural bent for useless or insoluble questions, which are the most plentiful and the easiest to deal with. But when any problem of a legitimate kind has been once proposed, it is the sole judge of the method to be pursued, and of the utility of the results obtained. Its province is to inquire into the present in order to foresee the future, and to discover the means of improving it. In this province it is not to be interfered with. In a word, the intellect is to be the servant of the heart, not its slave. Under these two correlative conditions, the elements of our nature will at last be brought into harmony. The equilibrium of the two elements, once established, is in little danger of being disturbed. For since it is equally favourable to both of them, both will be interested in maintaining it. The fact that reason in modern times has become habituated to revolt is no ground for supposing that it will always retain its revolutionary character, even when its legitimate claims have been fully satisfied. Supposing the case to arise, however, society, as I shall show afterwards, would not be without the means of repressing any pretensions that were subversive of order. There is another point of view which may assure us that the position given to the heart under the new system will involve no danger to the growth of intellect. Love, when real, ever desires light in order to attain its ends. The influence of true feeling is as favourable to sound thought as to wise activity. The subordination of the intellect to the heart is the subjective principle of positivism. Our doctrine, therefore, is one which renders hypocrisy and oppression alike impossible, and it now stands forward as the result of all the efforts of the past for the regeneration of order, which, whether considered individually or socially, is so deeply compromised by the anarchy of our present time. It establishes a fundamental principle by which true philosophy and sound polity are brought into correlation. A principle which can be felt as well as proved, and which is at once the keystone of a system and the basis of government. I shall show, moreover, in the fifth chapter, that the doctrine is as rich in its aesthetic beauty as in philosophical power and in social influence. This will complete the proof of its efficacy as the centre of a universal system.
Viewed from the moral, scientific, or poetical aspect, it is equally valuable, and it is the only principle which can bring humanity safely through the most formidable crisis that she has ever yet undergone. It will now be clear that the force of demonstration, a force peculiar to modern times, and which still retains much of its destructive character, becomes matured and elevated by positivism. It begins to develop constructive tendencies which will soon de be developed more largely. It is not too much, then, to say that positivism, notwithstanding its speculative origin, offers as much to natures of deep sympathy as to men of highly cultivated intellects or of energetic character. Objective basis of the system. External order of the world as revealed by science. The spirit and principle of the synthesis, which all true philosophers should endeavour to establish, have now been defined. I proceed to explain the method that should be followed in the task and the peculiar difficulty with which it is attended. The object of the synthesis will not be secured until it embraces the whole extent of its domain, the moral and practical departments as well as the intellectual. But these three departments cannot be dealt with simultaneously. They follow an order of succession which, so far from dissevering them from the whole to which they belong, is seen when carefully examined to be a natural result of their mutual dependence. The truth is, and it is a truth of great importance, that thoughts must be systematised before feelings, feelings before actions. It is doubtless owing to a confused apprehension of this truth that philosophers hitherto, in framing their systems of human nature, have dealt almost exclusively with our intellectual faculties. The necessity of communicating with the coordination of ideas is not merely due to the fact that the relations of these, being more simple and more susceptible of demonstration, form a useful logical preparation for the remainder of the task. On closer examination, we find it a more important though less obvious reason. If this first portion of the work be once efficiently performed, it is the foundation of all the rest. In what remains there is no very serious difficulty which will occur, provided always that we content ourselves with that degree of completeness which the ultimate purpose of the system requires. End of section one, recording by Morris in Halsey, Bedfordshire.